Hey, turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Luke, chapter 22 this morning. And while you're turning there, you know, one of the most intriguing promises that we find, I believe, in the entire Word of God is found recorded for us in the book of Jeremiah, chapter 33 and verse 3. Now, I know that the book of Jeremiah is often in the crispy portion of our Bibles where the gold leaf sticks together. But believe it or not, there's some real gold in them thar hills, including this statement the Lord makes. Call unto me, and I will answer you, and show you great and mighty things which you know not. Boy, what an intriguing promise from the Word of God. God has wonderful things to show us that we don't know yet. Now, Try to imagine that promise applied to, well, maybe one of the most intriguing issues that we face in this life, our future. If the Lord, for instance, was to come to you today, appear to you maybe in a dream or in a vision, and say to you, I am willing right now to show you exactly what your future holds between here and heaven, how many of you would want to know? You know, the more I go on in my walk with God, the more I am somewhat grateful that God has never done that for me, because I think if God had shown me everything I was going to go through all at once, I'd probably collapse in a heap of ruins. But the Lord does have a future and a hope for us. Again, in the book of Jeremiah, we are told, for I know the plans that I have for you, declares the Lord plans for welfare and not for calamity, to give you a future and a hope. Oh, there is that one greatly undervalued word that we find in the Word of God. The word is hope. And maybe one of the reasons that many of us have a hard time defining what hope is you know, uh, the, the Bible, uh, the, this world has a funny way of taking biblical concepts and redefining them for us. For instance, the, the world tells us that faith is believing in something that you know isn't true. Uh, they tell us that love is just an emotion and a feeling that you can fall in of and out of. But if you really want to see the world get something distorted, turn to the subject of hope. The world tends to find hope as something, well, that you use to deceive yourself, something that you use just to get on by uh, that isn't really true, that isn't really tangible, but, well, if nothing else goes right in your life, you can always hope that things are going to get better. The Bible tells us that hope is a far more powerful and tangible thing. As a matter of fact, we are going to see this morning in Luke chapter 22 that hope shines the brightest, manifests its power most profoundly when things are at their worst. Maybe even those times when we don't even realize the other shoe is going to drop, when we don't even realize that huge trials and huge troubles are coming our way, biblical hope can not only preserve us when the hard times come, but catch this, it can also prepare us so that good, good times can be better and bad times don't have to catch us off guard. This morning, we're going to see Jesus prepare his disciples 
for a rough ride that was in the offing. Less than hours away, everything that the 12 considered uh, go-tos, things they could rely upon, was going to be radically and completely taken away from them. God's will and their will were going to be revealed to be two different animals. And we're going to see in these last few minutes that Jesus has with his disciples how he injects, how he invests in his disciples this very poorly understood but absolute essential, especially for people living in times like the ones we live in today that we call biblical hope. We pick things up in the book of Luke chapter 22 and verse 22 this morning. Well, actually, we could begin at uh, verse uh, 24. It says, Now there was also a dispute among them as to which of them should be considered the greatest. Now, the, the fact that the disciples are bickering over which one of them is the greatest in the kingdom of God is really significant, and it takes on greater significance, especially in light of what has just transpired in Jesus' ministry. If you were with us last week in our study in Luke 22... You know that Jesus has just instituted what we would call the Lord's Supper. The first communion service has been held. Jesus elevated aspects and elements of the Passover Seder celebration that the Jews were very familiar with, this acted-out sermon, if you will, that illustrated deliverance from physical bondage in Egypt, God's great faithfulness to the people of Israel in the past. And God, through Jesus, is going to elevate elements of this, particularly the cup and the bread, which were part of the Passover Seder celebration, and use them to illustrate a greater liberation, that God has come to set us free from self, from sin, from Satan, and even death itself. That's what communion is all about. Now, Jesus has instituted this. He's explained it to his disciples. We even had an opportunity to put uh, communion into action last week. But then he follows up by saying something that undoubtedly uh, caused the disciples to uh, hit the brakes in a screeching halt. He said this in verse 21, But behold, the hand of my betrayer is with me on the table. And truly the Son of Man goes as it has been determined, but woe to that man by whom he's betrayed. Then they began to question among themselves which of them it was who would do this thing. Now, I think it's very interesting that the disciples, immediately after getting this bad news, this jolting news, that Jesus is not only going to be betrayed, but that his betrayer was right there in the room among them. And they were looking around saying, who in the world could do such a thing that immediately after that, they get into an argument over which one of them is greatest in the kingdom. And at first uh, blush, that doesn't make a lot of sense to us. But then we take a step back and factor good old-fashioned human nature into the equation, and it makes perfect sense to us. When Jesus causes their expectations that the glorious millennial reign of Jesus, his thousand-year reign on earth, and we've talked quite a bit about the wonderful prophecies about what it's going to be like when faith is replaced by sight, when Jesus himself rules and reigns from Jerusalem. You want to do a little homework afterwards, read uh, Isaiah chapter 11, for instance, this beautiful picture what the kingdom is going to be all about. That the disciples really, uh, in a sense, 
had promises from Jesus that they would sit on 12 thrones and judge the 12 tribes of Israel. Boy, they couldn't wait for that to get going. And yet, this prospect of the kingdom, even though they were going to be a part of it, even though they're going to have a significant role to play in it, you know what human beings are like. Any of you who've survived junior high understand beyond a shadow of a doubt that the one thing that happens when you get a group of homo sapiens together is immediately we begin to try to figure out the pecking order. Who's the best? Who's the worst? Who's the popular kid? Who's the one, well, maybe not so much? You know, do we exalt the person who's the most athletic? Do we exalt the person who's the best looking? Do we exalt the person who's smartest? And so on. And we get into these uh, disputes constantly. Maybe they're not expressed verbally. Sometimes they are. Sometimes it's not even subtle. That's why Scott's theory of human nature, I think, always holds. All we as adults are are more subtle junior hires. We've learned to keep all that thing under the, the rug, but it's still operating. It's still going on. We as human beings want to figure out who's who and what's what and where we fit in. Our entire lives, believe it or not, are still a quest to find our place at the cool kids table. And that's exactly what the disciples went back to. Why did they fall so easily back into the flesh? Well, a couple reasons, first of all. If you want your fallen sinful nature to start to run ragged in your life, Here's what you do. Start walking in fear instead of faith. Stop and think about it. Uh, last time you took a real spiritual face plant, the last time you had a pretty profound header, what usually leads into it? Well, usually it's a raging case of fear. Where's God in my life? Can I count on God in this set of circumstances? It seems like everybody else is close to God but me. Those times when we start to feel like we've hightailed it off to the bushes of Eden again and, and that we're desperately looking for scratchy, itchy fig leaves to cover ourselves up with. That's when we tend to get into trouble, when fear, not faith, is running our lives. Isaiah 26.3 gives us this profound insight. God says, you will keep in perfect peace the one whose mind is stayed on thee because he trusts in thee. Now understand, if you don't want perfect peace, do the opposite. Don't have your mind stayed on God. Focus in on your problems. Focus in on your peers. Focus in on your prospects. Focus in on your past. God's peace will evaporate in your life, I guarantee it, because fear and faith can't coexist. But notice as well, if you want the flesh to take over, uh, do the other thing. Uh, not only stop thinking about God, but don't trust him. Take things into your own hands, and I guarantee you, you're going to find yourself just like the disciples doing a quick spiritual 180 from the heights. Try to imagine this, of being a part of the first communion service with Jesus himself. The power and profundity of that moment must have just been overwhelming, and yet here we see him back doing what they always do, and that is disputing among themselves. In fact, it's really interesting in the original language, the word translated dispute is a word that literally means not just arguing, but the love of arguing. Looking at argument as your best friend. Now, I don't know if you've run into people like that. 
people that, uh, well, maybe don't really feel they're alive unless they're in some kind of dispute or some kind of discussion. Uh, we run into these individuals from time to time, and most of the time, I think we try to avoid them like the plague. But the disciples loved to argue, and I have to say that I can relate to that. As I've shared with you many times before, I'm a recovering adult child of an attorney. I had to present legal briefs to get the car keys growing up. If there's anything I really enjoy, it's a good debate, a good dispute. Well, truth be told, maybe even a good argument. The disciples were the same way, and it was always the same subject. Believe it or not, in uh, the book of Matthew, chapter 18 and verse 1, Matthew, chapter 20, verses 20 through 26, Mark, chapter 9, verses 33 through 34, and Luke, chapter 9 and verse 46, we see recorded in the Word of God this very same argument going on. Who's going to be greatest in the kingdom? As a matter of fact, the real kicker is the one that we find in the book of Matthew, because in that particular vignette, James and John put their mom up to coming to Jesus and saying, hey, when you come into the kingdom, could my son sit on your right hand and on your left? And Jesus said, that's not given to me to decide. Only the Father in heaven decides. And when the other disciples heard about it, they were bent. Oh, if we just thought about it, getting our moms to put in a word with Jesus, maybe we would have gotten the upper hand there. But you can see the scheming and conniving and, and you know, the jockeying for position that is part and parcel of the human nature. And I love that because it takes the disciples from the stained glass image that we have of them. You know, these individuals that uh, are just uh, icons carved out of soap with antifreeze running through their veins and reminds us that they were just like, maybe even dreadfully like, you and me. That's who Jesus was dealing with. And that's what was going on. They got into this dispute. Notice that when fear instead of faith took over their lives, the question was no longer, am I the one who's going to betray Jesus? No, they put that aside, and instead their big question is, uh, am I number one? And you could probably imagine how that uh, debate went down. Well, Peter said, well, of course, you know, I'm number one. I'm the guy who gets the revelations from God. And John probably said, no, 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 you, you got to realize I'm the disciple whom Jesus loves. And, and James says, well, I don't know about you guys, but every really significant miracle from raising Jairus' daughter, the very transfiguration, I was invited personally. The rest of you guys, not so much. You know, and then the rest of the disciples probably looked at them and said, well, of course they took you up on the Mount of Transfiguration. And of course they, they, he had you around. He knows that you guys can't be left alone by yourself. You could probably imagine how the conversation would go, go down. Even James the Less probably said, well, you know, Jesus said the one who's least is the greatest in the kingdom, so I must be number one. And on and on it would go. So <laughs> try to imagine this from Jesus' point of view. My goodness. He is hours away from his betrayal and his disciples, whom he's invested three years of his life, three years of perfect example, three years of perfect explanation, three years of perfect exhortation, the power of God's spirit, not only shared, but demonstrated. And at the end of three years, his disciples seem like they're classically failing their final exam. And I just share this with you as a word of encouragement. 
If you've ever been in a place where you've invested yourself in sharing the Word of God with somebody, maybe you've discipled somebody, maybe you know, you've, you've really taken an interest in someone's spiritual growth, and you've invested time and effort and energy, and they completely flake out. Well, congratulations, you are in very good company. Jesus knows exactly how that feels. Here we see the disciples, when they should have been at their best, being at their worst. So what does Jesus do? Does he go, I'm done, that's it, forget it. No, he continues to minister to them. Look at verse 25, and he said to them, the kings of the Gentiles exercise lordship over them. And those who exercise authority over them are called benefactors. But not so among you. On the contrary, he who is greatest among you, let him be as the younger, and he who governs as he who serves. For who is greater, he who sits at the table or he who serves? Is it not I who sits, not he who sits at the table? Yet I am among you as one who serves. Now, this is another reason why I'm really glad we just don't have one gospel account. Some people will say, why do we have four eyewitness accounts of the life of Jesus? Well, this is a classic example of why it is a great thing that we have not just Matthew, Mark, and Luke, which tend to deal with the same subject matter with different additions of detail, but but run pretty close to each other in parallel. But we also have the Gospel of John where John the Beloved was able to add some details to what we understand about these particular circumstances that really begin to cause what's going on here to shine in high definition. When Jesus said, I am among you as one who serves, that is a statement that is recorded in the Gospel of Luke. But we discover in John chapter 13, Jesus not only stated that he was among them as one who serves, He actually showed them that he was among them as one who serves. In verse 2 of John chapter 13, we are told, After supper ended, the devil, having already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands, and that he had come from God and was going to God, rose from supper and laid aside his garments, took a towel and girded himself. After that, he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel with which he was girded. Then he came to Simon Peter, and Peter said to him, Lord, are you washing my feet? He answered and said to him, What I'm doing you do not understand now, but you will know after this. Peter said, You shall never wash my feet. You almost see him pulling his feet away from Jesus at this point. He said, If I don't wash you, you have no part with me. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, not my feet only, but also my heads, my hands and my head. Here, Peter's still trying to tell Jesus his business. Jesus said to him, he who is bathed needs only to wash his feet, but is completely clean. And you are clean, but not all of you. In verse 12, when he'd washed their feet, taken his garments and sat down again, he said, do you not know what I've done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you say, well, for so I am. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I've given you an example that you should do as I've done to you. Most assuredly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is he who sent greater than he who sent him. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. Now notice the whole debate about greatness is solved here. 
not by Jesus giving them a lecture, but by Jesus giving them an example. You know, one of the jobs that I had growing up uh, was I worked uh, at one time for Kenny Shoes. I was a shoe salesman for Kenny Shoes. And I want to tell you something. When you're a shoe salesman, sometimes people will come in and they want to try on shoes and they don't have any socks. And, and, and so we, we had the spare sock box for, for people like this. And, and especially the people who would come in not wearing any socks. Man, you discovered something. The human foot is one of the most disgusting things that you will ever encounter. Now, I know your feet are pristine, and, and your feet are very nice and clean and smell like a rose. But other people's feet, man, oh, man, you don't want to have an up-close and personal encounter with that, especially if you're in Jesus' culture, where they wore sandals. And oftentimes, uh, before we had sanitation the way we do today, people would just dump their garbage out in the street. First thing you would do if you're invited over for proper company was there would be a basin of water and a towel present, and the lowest servant in the house would get stuck with foot washing duty. In Hawaii, it's considered a party foul to almost do the opposite thing. If you walk in with your shoes on in a house in Hawaii, you've really done an offensive thing. But here we see that this standard operating procedure hadn't been followed. The disciples so concerned about the pecking order, none of them were going to be the least in that place and wash the other's feet. So who becomes the least? The greatest. Jesus himself. So here we see Jesus giving them this wonderful picture of what real service is all about. Now notice he says that the, uh, those who are among the Gentiles exercise lordship over them, and those who exercise authority of them are called benefactors. Well, the idea of benefactors literally means do-gooders with a little bit of a twist to it. You know, when we think about a benefactor today, we think about people who do nice things, do charitable things, uh, donate large amounts of money for a particular cause. But in our society, when someone does that, what do they get? They get their name on the building. They get a plaque on the wall. They, they get a particular work dedicated to them. And, you know, and, and that's kind of the payoff. We, we do nice things because we want to be recognized in return. That's the idea of being a benefactor. But Jesus said, it's not to be so among you. you know, when we do nice things for people, we come alongside and exercise love in tangible ways. Jesus, in Matthew chapter 6, you should read through it, said our point of emphasis should be that we should do it in such a way that only we and the Father know. That's it. If you want to be rewarded fully in heaven, do things in such a way that you're doing it for God and God alone, not for the attaboy, not for the pat on the back, not for recognition, you want to travel the shortest distance between two points, between where you are right now and burnout in Christian service. Start getting addicted to the approval of others for what you're allegedly doing for God. You know, when, you know, sometimes people will be really invested and involved here in the church. And granted, I think it's an important thing to encourage one another and express appreciation to one another. But I'm always really cautious in my position to do that. Because sometimes people are doing that because they think if I appreciate them, then that's really a great thing. But I have to be very careful. 
Because if you do what you do in the church to have a reputation, to have recognition, to have people you know, respond to you because you are involved or invested or you give or whatever you do, you know, the, the problem with that is you're going to get to heaven someday. And you're going to see amazing, unbelievable rewards being handed out by God himself. And you're going to go, well, you know, I, I did an awful lot. I can't wait to see what my reward is. And you're going to get there, and God's going to look at you and go, there's no reward for you. You go, what, no reward for me? But all this stuff I did. Well, you did all that to impress Scott Richards. Scott was very impressed, but that's all you're going to get. I guarantee you, you're going to be bummed beyond recognition when that happens. So do what you do is unto the Lord, and no one can take away your joy, Right? You're going to be resentment-proof and bitterness-proof because you've got your heart and your mind in the right place. That's what Jesus is saying here. Don't do things the way the world does things. Do things the way the kingdom of God does things. But notice Jesus, even after dropping this bomb on them, has a word of encouragement for them. He says, but you are those who continue with me in my trials. And I bestow upon you a kingdom... Just as my father bestowed one upon me, that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom and sit on thrones judging the 12 tribes of Israel. Now, notice, here we see Jesus demonstrating something here. The Bible tells us in the book of Romans, chapter 8 and verse 1, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. If you belong to the Lord, the Lord will never condemn you. The idea of condemning you, maybe you've seen some of those, uh, those gladiator flicks, you know, where you've got, uh, you know, Russell Crowe down there, and, you know, then the Roman Emperor Commodus comes out, and, you know, the, the people are, are chanting either, kill, 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 and then the, the Roman Emperor will go either thumbs up, that means the person gets to live, or thumbs down, the person gets to die. The word condemnation in the original language is the word literally to judge down, to give the thumbs down, to give the verdict of death, if you will. Well, the Bible says if you belong to Jesus Christ, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. God has not destined us, 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 tells us, for wrath, but for salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. In other words, we don't have to worry about that. But one thing we should be aware of is there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. But, oh, yeah, there is correction for those who are in Christ Jesus. And and that's what Jesus does here in, in a beautiful way. Jesus affirms that the disciples, so wrongheaded, right, so focused in on things they shouldn't be focused in on, you know, these individuals that if I had been Jesus, I would have just said, you know, uh, Father, can we just do another three years and I'll invest myself in another 12 people and then maybe they'll get it straight. But what does Jesus say? Even after dropping this bomb on them, even after pointing out the fact that, you know, they were just loath and, 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 and almost terrified at the idea of humbling themselves enough to wash each other's feet and Jesus takes the lead Instead of just saying, yeah, you guys are so unlike me, I'm just, I've had it with you. But notice Jesus turns around and affirms them. But you are those who've continued with me in my trials. 
Well, you know, the disciples didn't get a lot right in the earthly ministry of Jesus, and we kind of cluck our tongues and laugh at them because they got things so notoriously badly wrong in the ministry of Jesus. But they did get one thing right. They continued with Jesus in his trials. They were loyal. They saw Jesus at the height. They saw Jesus at the death. They saw Jesus when in John chapter 6, the people were ready to take him by force and make him king. And then after Jesus explained to them that his kingdom was going to be something that was internal and not external, that they were not to strive or work for the bread which perishes, but for the bread which the Son of Man will give you, which leads to everlasting life. When Jesus explained to them that he was the bread of life and that they needed to take him in in order to have eternal life, uh, the crowd looked at Jesus and said, this is a hard saying, who can hear it? And then John chapter 6 and verse 66 says this. I, I think it's kind of ironic that that's the address there. It says, after that, many of most of Jesus' disciples went away and did not follow him anymore. And he said, this is a hard saying, who can hear it? And Jesus looked at his disciples and said, do you guys want to go too? And Peter, bless his pointy little head, didn't get a lot right in the ministry of Jesus. But he looked at Jesus and said, where else shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. Well, you see, the disciples didn't get a lot right, but they hung in there. You know, I think probably one of the most shocking and surprising things we will see when we see the Lord face to face is, you know, we think, oh, you know, what is Jesus going to reward me for? You know, what am I going to be blessed for in heaven? You know, I think the Lord is probably going to appreciate more than anything else the fact that we simply hung in there. Yeah, I, I saw in the news this week that they are uh, starting production on a movie on the Jesus movement. Uh, Kelsey Grammer from uh, Cheers and Frasier, uh, the famous actor, is going to play Pastor Chuck Smith in that movie. And so I'm really interested in seeing someone play somebody, you know, whom I know so closely. You know, it's going to really be something else. But I remember, you know, just looking at this and Greg Laurie, you know, was making jokes about, well, I had to go to uh, uh, the costume thing to get a wig because now he's completely bald and, and, and so on. You know, I look at this, those of us that were kind of hippies and, and so on, and we've changed an awful lot since then. But the other thing that hit me was, you know, they were filming a scene, a baptism scene at a place in Newport Beach called Pirate's Cove. And uh, I had the privilege of being on staff at Calvary Costa Mesa of doing baptisms at Pirate's Cove when we would do those. And, and the way it would work was we would gather together there. Uh, all of us on staff would wade out into about waist-deep water there in Newport Harbor at this place, off this beach. And that water is cold, man. And, and you're just about there where it's just kind of going up and down right over your abdomen. I mean, the worst place to be in cold water, right? But you figure, well, we're here to baptize, so we'll be really active. The, the, the way it would work is there would be about 200 people in line to be pap baptized by Pastor Chuck, and then there'd be the rest of us standing there kind of looking at each other. And, and so when I saw this, this, this movie being made, you know, it was very encouraging. And, you know, Pam and I were just talking about uh, the, the, the wonderful experiences we had of being part uh, of the Jesus movement back in that day and what an exciting thing it was. But, but you know, as I was preparing this study, one of the things that hit me, was this. There sure were a lot of people that I knew that started running after the Lord, running the Christian race in the Jesus movement days. 
you know, when I got saved in 73 and so on. A lot of my peers came to know the Lord during that time. But I look around now, and I would say the majority of them aren't running the race anymore. They're not following the Lord anymore. Somehow they got distracted. Somehow they got dissuaded. Somehow they missed the boat, if you will. Oh, maybe they give nominal, you know, kind of verbal uh, acclamation to the idea that they believe in Jesus, but they're sure not serving him anymore, not with the passion, not with the power that we experienced back in that time. And you know, when I thought about that, I thought there is an incredible value in simply hanging in there in the Christian life. According to the Barna organization, the average pastor lasts in full-time ministry no longer than five years, and they find something easier to do with their lives. And believe me, if God hasn't called you to do this, I highly suggest finding something else to do because there's a lot easier ways to make a living out there. But if God has called you to minister, and you know that Jesus has called you to minister, it doesn't matter if people applaud or they throw rocks. It doesn't matter if you get the attaboys and the accolades and the high-profile positions or if you just humbly serve the Lord in some area that he has just called you to be faithful in because that's what the Lord rewards. Listen to these words again. But you are those who have continued with me in my trials. And I bestow upon you a kingdom just as my Father bestowed one upon me that you may eat and drink at my table in the kingdom and sit on 12 thrones judging the 12 tribes of Israel. For those who simply hang in there, don't miss this. There are rewards waiting us in heaven that are absolutely incomprehensible to us. And that is what the Bible speaks of when it speaks of hope. Hope is not some ethereal emotion. It is not someone trying to give you a pep talk. Hope is the sure and certain conviction that God is true to his promises. And just as he was true to his promises to the disciples, even though their track record was up and down and in between, so God is going to be true to his promises to you. And the person who has that living hope, that person who understands looking at their lives. You know, I've seen what God has done in my life yesterday, and I love what God is doing in my life today. Therefore, I will have no fear for tomorrow, for God is already there. That is what biblical hope is all about. And that is what this world completely lacks. You want to see people freaking out? You want to see people living in fear? Just go on the internet, turn on your televisions, walk around your neighborhood. Fear instead of faith is doing land office business. You want to stand out like a sore thumb? Here's what you do. You believe in Jesus. You believe his word is true. You believe he never lets a single person fall through the cracks. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, but there is correction. And he is going to do what it takes to keep you on track. Why? Because he wants you to know beyond a shadow of a doubt you belong to him. 
There is no greater form of assurance in your walk with God than God correcting you, sometimes in a pretty radical way, but correcting you when you need it. Because only a father can discipline his children. You try to discipline somebody else's kid, good luck. You try to discipline somebody else's dog, good luck. But someone else's kid, get ready to duck. In the book of Proverbs chapter 3, in verses 11 and 12, we are told this. My son, do not despise the chastening of the Lord, nor let your heart detest his correction. For whom the Lord loves, he corrects. Even as a father, the son, in whom he delights. Hope tells us that by faith in Jesus, just like these disciples, not on the basis of their track record for God, but because of God's unconditional love for them, we are dearly and deeply beloved by the Lord. Hope says, hang in there. The best is yet to come. Do you have that hope today? Let's pray and ask the Lord to give us that hope. Father, thank you that, Lord, in this section of Scripture where things seem so dark and will soon get darker in the ministry of Jesus, your light still shines. And, Father, we ask you to forgive us for the times where we, like the disciples, have been flaky, where we've been faithless, uh, where we've been slaves to our emotions, where we've given way to fear instead of faith in you, where instead of uh, a blessed hope, uh, we have followed the herd in this world and given way to thinking that things are bad and, and that earthly uh, people with earthly solutions are our only hope. But I thank you that you call us to a higher and more glorious hope than that, a hope that is tangible, a hope that is powerful, a hope that will never disappoint us because the love of God has been shed abroad in our hearts through the Lord Jesus Christ. Thank you, Lord. And Father, I pray this morning for any who are feeling hopeless, any who feel that they've pushed things too far, any who feel that what they define as a, a godly Christian and the way they've lived are two different animals. They've got a lot of company we've seen in this passage. But I thank you, Lord, that you're still in the business of washing our feet. You're still in the business of correcting us. You're still in the business of assuring us that you who began a good work in us will be faithful to complete it till the day of Christ Jesus. So just inject that hope into our lives today and help us, Father, having that living hope, shine with that hope and allow others to know that your hope is available for them as well, especially in this Easter season. Give us that fervor, that stick-to-itiveness to finish the race. We don't want to start in a way that is zealous and on fire and burn out. And the only way we're not going to burn out is if we simply keep our eyes on you. Grant us that simplicity of devotion to you, we ask. In Jesus' name, amen.